the WTF Bach podcast. This is a bonus episode. This is a bonus episode. Bonus episode. Bonus episode of the WTF Bach podcast. WTF Bach brought to you by Evan Shepard. And now here's WTF Bach. Hey everyone, it's Evan here. I am still away from a piano, so I have to come up with some creative solutions to give you episodes about Bach without an instrument. So two episodes ago, I began with a quote of Huxley's. It was quite an impressive quote about how he thought, while drugged, that Bach was a manifestation of God. And this quote I found in an article which was written on Bach's 300th birthday. So I thought that the whole article is really worth reading. So that's what this bonus episode will be. It really encapsulates the way that people were thinking about Bach at that time. It wonders if our generation will revive the discredited playing styles of the 19th century. It wonders if we today in the 21st century will hear Bach's music more on synthesizers or more on antique instruments. And also, and this is sort of my favorite part, it speaks about how we today will most likely discover aspects of Bach that the previous generation was previously unaware. It puts Bach with Shakespeare and speaks about how the two of them have survived and will survive distorting reconstructions of their work. So if you think about the time when this is written, this was a few years after Glenn Gould had died and Andres Schiff was new to the scene. People like Gustav Leonhardt were always around, but maybe just beginning to enter the public consciousness, the consciousness of the listener at home. Philip Herrevega was beginning to make his first recordings, but I think it was still unclear if this revival was going to last. And I think certainly people back then may have been surprised to see that schools nowadays have actually split historic performance into another division within the school entirely. Another great thing about this article is it speaks about the words in Bach's music and how the words, the text, is actually beginning to help people understand Bach's work more. So the writer mentions that in 1985, when this article is from, People think automatically of Bach as the composer of the Artifugue, the Musical Offering, and the Brandenburg Concertos. But he also says that even so, this was the great composer of vocal music. But I think if we were to make that same statement today, people think automatically about Bach. I think nowadays, in 2020, we think automatically of Bach as, yes, the composer of the Artifugue, but also the composer of the St. Matthew Passion. We'd have to throw in a few vocal works. So this shows, to some extent, the shift in thinking about Bach has certainly been centered on Bach's vocal music in these last, I guess, 35 years. And it's funny, because if I had to explain my own thinking about Bach, I would certainly say that even though I grew up singing his cantatas and his passions, my bass is very much centered on the keyboard works. And only after I became thoroughly familiar with the keyboard works did I begin to branch out into first the chamber works, and then once I got through those, then the big vocal works, and finally the individual cantatas. And these, those cantatas, they seem to be inexhaustible. Inexhaustible, yes, as if the 15 two-part inventions are not. But I guess my point is that maybe the entire world, over 300 years, has begun to be more curious about Bach's work, and therefore, after listening a collective 8 billion times to Gould's 1955 Goldbergs, we're finally moving on to the vocal works. Well, I will shut up for now about my own feelings and read you this article. It was written by James A. Wynn for the New York Times Review of Books on March 24th, 1985, and I will include a link to the article in the episode description. Listen in, tune in, follow along. You can hear it now on the WTF Bach Podcast. Like Shakespeare, Bach is one of those giants whose work speaks differently, though powerfully, to every period. The aesthetic assumptions of the 18th and 19th centuries impose their limits on the interpretations of Shakespeare offered by Dr. Johnson or Coleridge, but those readings are alert to truths we may have forgotten. 
There is no guarantee that our readings of Shakespeare will seem any less limited to our grandchildren who will reinterpret him for the 21st century and who will doubtless uncover aspects of his art to which we are blind. Coming generations will also be listening to Bach and remaking him in the image of their own time, though whether they will normally hear his music on synthesizers or antique instruments remains an open question. Perhaps they will even engage in loving reconstructions of the 19th century style of Bach playing, now thought to be discredited. Whatever their practice, Bach will survive it, as Shakespeare has survived all kinds of distorting productions. Unlike his lesser contemporaries, composers like Couperin or Telemann, Bach transcends his time and place. Nonetheless, remembering some of the aesthetic assumptions of the world into which Bach was born just 300 years ago may help us appreciate his accomplishments. In that world, instrumental music had not achieved the independence from texts that it began to gain during Bach's lifetime. We may automatically think of Bach as the composer of the Art of Fugue, the Musical Offering, the Well-Tempered Clavier, or the Brandenburg Concertos, but the overwhelming majority of his compositions are vocal works. He wrote five complete cycles of church cantatas into which he set biblical texts as well as familiar chorales, and he set new poetry by several undistinguished writers of devotional verse. Although we have only about half of his music, we are beginning to hear it performed with some frequency, and our renewed awareness of Bach's skill as a setter of texts ought to increase our admiration for the range of his genius. The poets whose words Bach set had sufficient understanding of his musical technique to appreciate and describe that skill, since a detailed knowledge of musical notation and philosophy was part of the schooling of poets from the Middle Ages until the generation of Bach, just as a detailed knowledge of poetic meter and rhetorical theory was a necessary part of the training of composers. But with the growing independence and complexity of instrumental music during the 18th century, and with the waning of the medieval organization of the school curriculum in which music had a prominent place, Fewer and fewer writers after Bach had a technical understanding of what composers were doing. Nevertheless, Bach's music has remained a source of profound inspiration for writers in every generation since his death, and if writers have often had to resort to metaphor to express the way his music moved them, their sense of the meaning of his music is traceable to his own sensitivity to their craft, the art of words. Goethe is an instructive example. Born in 1749, 11 months before Bach's death, he grew up in a world that had virtually forgotten Bach's music, and he was over 60 when he first made contact with it. About 1810, the composer Karl Friedrich Zelter, whose plodding setting of Goethe's Die Schöne Müllerin, Goethe preferred to Schubert's, attempted to satisfy the poet's curiosity about musical history by helping him procure copies of some of Bach's pieces. And by 1819, Goethe was using Bach as a source of poetic inspiration. During a three-week holiday, he arranged to have a local organist play Bach chorales and fugues daily for three or four hours while he wrote poetry. When Mendelssohn conducted his famous revival of the St. Matthew Passion in 1829, Zelter wrote to Goethe, describing the performance and enclosing a text of the Passion. Goethe replied that he had heard the event in his mind like the distant roar of the sea. A year later, Mendelssohn himself spent two weeks in Goethe's house playing Bach's music at the keyboard for the old poet. Bach's contemporaries praised his music by comparing it to language, but Goethe's, less than a century later, responded to Bach by claiming that his music gained direct access to the soul, transcending not only language but the ordinary empirical paths of sense impression. Remembering the hours in which he first had listened closely to Bach, he compared the contrapuntal harmonies of Bach's music with the universal harmony, quote, in the bosom of God just before the creation, so the music also moved my soul, and it was as if 
I neither had nor needed ears, let alone eyes or any other sense. This statement, written in 1827, is astonishingly close to the more garrulous testimony of Aldous Huxley, who listened to Bach's music during one of his LSD experiments in 1955. Quote, Time was very different. We played the Bach B minor suite and the musical offering, and the experience was overpowering. Other music, e.g. Palestrina and Bird, seemed unsatisfactory by comparison. Bach was a revelation. The tempo of the pieces did not change. Nevertheless, they went on for centuries, and they were a manifestation on the plane of art of perpetual creation, a demonstration of the necessity of death and the self-evidence of immortality, an expression of the essential all-rightness of the universe, for the music was far beyond tragedy, but included death and suffering with everything else in the divine impartiality which is the one, which is love, which is being, or istiskeit. Who on earth was Johann Sebastian? Clearly not the old gent with sixteen children in a stuffy Protestant environment, rather an enormous manifestation of the other, but the other canalized, controlled, made available through the intervention of the intellect and the senses and the emotions. I wonder what the old gent with sixteen children, actually twenty, would have made of either of these statements. He might have understood Goethe's reference to the creation as a version of Pythagorean mysticism, since he believed that God's creation, like human musical composition, was deeply grounded in mysteries of number. But I doubt he could have easily accepted Goethe's rejection of hearing, sight, and the other senses. His own senses were notoriously acute. He was famous for the speed in which he could tune a harpsichord, and he could tell by looking at the arches inside a church what kind of music would echo most effectively through the space. He would have probably been happier, therefore, with Huxley's notion that his music was a manifestation of the other, which he would have simply called God, made available through the intervention of the intellect and the senses and the emotions. In Bach's world, however, many poets and theologians regarded music as inferior to the world because it appealed primarily to the senses. Poetry and scripture, they believed, could better reach the intellect and emotions, and music's function was simply to animate poetic or biblical texts. When Bach accepted a post as organist and choirmaster in Leipzig, he had to promise his employers to, quote, arrange the music that it shall not last too long and shall be of such a nature as not to make an operatic impression, but rather incite the listeners to devotion. That Lutheran uneasiness about the, quote, operatic impression made by compositional and vocal virtuosity may be traced back through St. Augustine to Plato, who banished all but two musical modes from his Republic. Indeed, such an ascetic distrust of music, sometimes manifesting itself in a distinction between the supposedly feminine and seductive qualities of melody and the masculine and rational qualities of words, is a recurrent strain in Western thought. We detect Bach's awareness of such jealousies in his instructions to his students about harpsichord playing. He told them to make, quote, a well-sounding harmony to the glory of God and the permissible delectation of the spirit, implying that there were impermissible delights to be avoided. Bach's arias, however, may stand up as a sufficient demonstration that musical sophistication and delight are by no means incompatible with the expression of a text. They are frequently dramatic, and some of their devices betray his awareness of the secular opera. But he was never guilty of writing an empty vehicle for vocal display. When his music is difficult, as it often is, the difficulty is expressive, ultimately serving both musical and poetic purposes. When he employed the word-painting techniques that opera composers had taken over from the Renaissance madrigal, setting particular words to referring to height, depth, running, weeping, and so forth, to notes or phrases that reinforce their meaning, Bach did so within the larger musical context. As his son, Carl Philip Emanuel, pointed out after his death, quote, he worked devoutly, 
governing himself by the context of the text without any strange misplacing of the words and without elaborating on individual words at the expense of the sense of the whole, as a result of which ridiculous thoughts often appear. For other composers, as C.P.E. Bach implies, the painting of individual words proved subversive to musical structure. Bach brilliantly avoided such ridiculous thoughts by building whole pieces out of musical ideas that originated as local word painting, and his arias are thus coherent both verbally and musically, so coherent that they can survive transcriptions to instruments. Another axis connecting words and music was the ancient system of rhetoric, about which Bach was also well informed. His position at Leipzig required him to instruct the choir boys from an elementary textbook of grammar and rhetoric, and Johann Birnbaum, who taught rhetoric at the University of Leipzig, was among his particular friends. According to Birnbaum, Bach so perfectly understood the resemblance which the performance of a musical piece has in common with the rhetorical art that he was listened to with the utmost satisfaction and pleasure when he discoursed to the similarity and agreement between them. The crucial word here is performance. Bach's awareness of rhetoric is most apparent in his recitatives, where the underlining of important words by harmonic accents helps the performer fulfill the role. In his arias, Bach's compositional works seem to have started with the melodic idea, often one suggested by a particular word, but when composing as a recitative, his habit was to copy down the entire text before writing any music. Some of these texts deserve the primacy Bach gave them. Luther's Bible in prose is far more impressive as literature than any of the poems Bach set, and Bach clearly recognized his distinction, writing his most effective and rhetorical recitatives for the tenors who narrate the St. Matthew and the St. John Passion. Ironically, most later writers, in their comments on Bach, have been silent about these rhetorical skills, even when referring overtly to the vocal works. Goethe, who might have been expected to express some interest in the way Bach dramatized the text of the St. Matthew Passion when Seltzer sent it to him, spoke instead of the roaring of the ocean. Huxley, in a letter of 1933 expressing his admiration for the agonized, poignant quality of Beethoven's Misa Solemnis, called Bach's passions lovely and splendid beyond words, an odd kind of praise for works that so powerfully employ words. But W. H. Auden, who was unusual among modern poets for his technical understanding of music, was also exceptional in his alertness to Bach's rhetoric, especially in his early plays. In The Dog Beneath the Skin, a group of medical students sing in, quote, heavy four-part harmony, a two-line chorale, we see death every day but do not understand him. The music, according to the stage direction, should have the, quote, flavor of Bach in his dramatic mood. In The Ascent of F6, a longer but similarly nihilistic chorale text uses a meter designed to fit exactly the final chorale of the St. Matthew Passion. A poet in Bach's time would have called this the making of a contrafactum, a new text for an existing tune. Bach himself, believing as Auden did later in a more redemptive theology, might have been even more impressed by Marianne Moore's account of Auden, waiting for the start of a radio interview playing sections from the St. Matthew Passion on a battered studio piano. In The Passions, the element of death and suffering Huxley heard in the instrumental works are explicit in the text, so that Auden, playing through the choruses of the St. Matthew Passion at the piano, could mentally hear the German words or imagine new English words to fit the music. But theorists in Bach's period did not differentiate sharply between vocal and instrumental music. With the great increased interest in emotion and individual psychology that affected all the arts during the 18th century, the notion of a musical rhetoric blended into the related idea that particular emotions could be expressed in music by particular melodic, harmonic, and rhythmic devices. Rather than merely illustrating individual words or drawing from his musical motifs, 
from rhetorical patterns of arrangement, the composer was now supposed to express various passions. A mechanical catalogue of compositional devices was offered as an equivalent of Descartes' reductive catalogue of emotional states. Again, the striking thing about Bach's procedure is his freedom. He was aware of the conventional associations of instruments, keys, and intervals, oboes for pastoral, G minor for despair, wide upward leaps for exclamation, but his use of these conventions, like his use of material originating in word painting, was never a mechanical matter of decorating one isolated word or phrase. He also employed these musical ideas structurally, deriving musical coherence from the very materials that made the works of lesser composers seem fragmented or episodic. Consequently, listeners entirely ignorant of these 18th century conventions, have responded deeply to Bach's powerful expressions of the emotions he felt in himself and poured into his music. Huxley provides an interesting example. After the LSD experience, he forgot his earlier admiration for the agonized Beethoven and advised a medical friend to play Bach for patients undergoing LSD therapy, adding that it would be most unwise to subject a patient to sentimental religious music or even good religious music if it were tragic, e.g. Mozart or the Verdi Requiems or Beethoven's Misa Solemnis. John Sebastian is safer because ultimately it's truer to reality. Although Huxley was perhaps unable to define what made Bach truer to reality, I would argue that Bach's practical experience in setting such moving texts as the Passions was part of what Huxley responded to, even in orchestral suites or keyboard fugues. Goethe, Huxley, and many other writers have sought to picture Bach as a romantic before his time, anticipating and satisfying the aesthetic aims of the 19th and 20th centuries, including some kind of magical transcendence of ordinary sense impressions. But Bach was a stubbornly conservative figure who preserved the compositional techniques of earlier centuries. He would have defined transcendence, at least in part, by recourse to the mysteries of number. Not only did he devote much time in his later years to fugal works, whose contrapuntal intricacies seem hopelessly old-fashioned to his sons, but he drew frequently and explicitly on the Pythagorean mysticism of numbers that had been so important for medieval composers and poets. A few examples will suffice. A chorale prelude on a hymn whose text deals with the Ten Commandments as ten statements of the melody. A New Year's cantata uses the calendar numbers 30, 31, and 365. Sections of many arias and choruses are laid out on exact mathematical proportions. Moreover, by the simple device of assigning numerical values to the letters of the alphabet, he could reconstitute words as numbers. The numerical total of the letters in the name Bach, 14, is a principal construction in many pieces. The value of J.S. Bach, 41, is the number of notes in the melody of his last organ chorale. Thanks to the German conventions of musical spelling, in which our B natural is called H and our B flat is called B, Bach could also insert a melody based on his name into the works and did so frequently. The emotional force of Bach's music can be felt by any sensitive listener, but no ordinary listener is likely to count notes and measures in order to detect such numerical constructions, any more than any ordinary reader of Edmund Spencer's Epithalamion counts its stanzas and lines to discover a concealed numerological scheme, which was first found in 1960, nearly four centuries after the poem was written. The medieval poets and composers who frequently employed such hidden numerical schemes, along with palindromes, anagrams, and their musical equivalents, had two quite different motives. Believing in the mathematical myth of the music of the spheres, they were confident God would appreciate their skill. They also hoped that other adepts, particularly the scribes who copied out their works, might notice their masterly contrivances. Bach probably never entertained versions of both these motives. The idea of God's creation as supremely ordered by number and music was no quaint metaphor for him. And employing some of these numerical schemes was an act of faith. 
but his piety did not preclude humor, and some of his numerical contrivances are simply games designed for the amusement of the composer and his musically literate friends. Still, C.P.E. Bach was correct in asserting that his father was, quote, never a friend of dry mathematical stuff. Bach's imagination was fundamentally melodic, and his music is rooted in the sung line, in the expressive fusion of word and tone. After all, he began his musical life as a boy soprano, and his advertisement for the two-part inventions promises that those who practice them will arrive at a singing style in playing. The mathematical aspects of Bach's art embarrassed his 19th century biographers, but they have come to fascinate contemporary scholars for reasons that have much to do with our own culture. The computer on which I write, for example, processes the letters I type by turning them into numbers, and we live in a world where numbers, though stripped of the specifically Christian symbolic meaning they had for Bach, are still treated as magical. Douglas Hofstetter's Gödel Escher Bach from 1979 points in this direction, emphasizing the ingenuity of the canonic puzzles Bach wrote for the amusement of other professionals, but maintaining complete silence about his vocal music. Although Mr. Hofstetter clearly means to praise Bach, he unwittingly belittles him by treating one part of his compositional personality as if it were the whole, and by grouping him with lesser men. The graphic artist M.C. Escher was a maker of clever visual puns, but his work lacks the larger humanity of the genuinely important artist. Bach's music, by contrast, displays not only astonishing skill at musical construction, including the mathematical trickery that Mr. Hofstetter finds so fascinating, but a deep expressiveness that is most apparent in his sensitivity to texts. Kurt Gödel's incompleteness theorem, important though it may be to the development of mathematics, is in one sense an expression of despair, a proof that no mathematical system will ever attain complete coherence. It emphasizes human limitations and reinforces our constant sense of being off balance. Bach's music, by contrast, is the product of a genius who surpassed ordinary human limitations and has provided three centuries with a model of coherence. For Bach, the eternal truths embodied in numbers were part of that coherence, but so were the truths embodied in words, especially the inspired words of the Bible. Writers have most frequently used metaphysical metaphors to praise Bach's music. Today's fascination with Bach's numerology is a modern example, but the truth embodied in that praise is incomplete, like all responses to a real genius, and we ought to remember that the emotional depth Bach was able to bring to his instrumental compositions began, like St. John's Gospel, with the word. Well, that's the article, folks. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you got something out of it. I hope you don't mind a text-only uh, episode. But if I have to make a connection between this article by James Wynn and the forthcoming episode where I plan to debunk a different piece of Bach writing, is that he can see that in any age, we read Bach into our own thoughts influenced by our own culture. And he's keenly aware that whatever modern thoughts these may be, they're clearly different. They're clearly set at philosophical odds with those in the time of Bach. The book, which I am taking down, however, does just the opposite. It makes sweeping statements on Bach's character based on the times in which we live. It fills in gaps or missing links based on conjectures from our current aesthetics. So in short, I suppose these two episodes, this one here that was what I think is a really wonderful piece of Bach writing, and this next one, uh, this entire book, which is based on a false premise, we're ready to set the stage between what good Bach writing is and what bad Bach writing is. And I hope you're all as excited as I am to really take down this faux Bach scholar. Just a quick note about James Wynne. Uh, he was an English scholar. He was an English teacher. 
He taught at Boston University. He could read Greek, German, French, and Latin, could write poetry along with interpreting it. He was a scholar of 18th century British literature. He apparently wrote the most important biography of John Dryden ever written. And he was an amateur flute player and made several recordings on the flute. He wrote a book called The Poetry of War, which looks at how poets have viewed wars from ancient Greece to the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And I found that this statement from that book, The Poetry of War, was a wonderful summary about the use of poetry and what poetry is. He says, quote, the lesson is to use poetry to make precise, targeted, moral statements about our world. I think that's a pretty, pretty good idea about what poetry is. Uh, I'll also include this link to his obituary from the Boston Globe, which appeared last year. But um, hope you've enjoyed this episode and stay tuned for the next one. Thanks. 